this is Gospel from the book of Matthew. You can follow in your bulletins or on the screen behind me. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that, was what, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. I want to begin today then with the question, uh, what does following Jesus look like? I trust that this is a relevant question for everyone, whether you are Christian or not. As a Christ follower, uh, it's good to have a reference, uh, a gauge of what it looks like to follow Christ to make sure you're on the right path and, and that you really are living out a genuine Christianity. But if you, are not, uh, if you have not placed your faith in Christ yet today uh, and you are investigating Jesus Christ, um, then it's good to know the answer to this. What, what does the Bible say about what it looks like to follow Christ? Because if you're serious about following Jesus, then uh, I trust that you want to make sure you're following the true Jesus and in the right way. Now, generally speaking, just as a summary, there are those of us, whether Christian or not, the way we perceive Christianity and following Jesus, it's primarily about obedience to rules. It's about being moral and being a good person, uh, deciphering what Christian ethics are and living by that. For some of us, it's the exact opposite. We think because God has loved us, we primarily think because of his grace and unconditional love, we are free from rules. Jesus came to free us from all of those rules, and some of us take that to uh, a mutated, I'm just laying my cards on the table, a mutated extreme uh, that we can be licentious and just live any way which way we want. Some of us, primarily speaking, we reduce following Jesus to having the right knowledge, to just understanding, while it is beautiful, but this complex library of Christian systems and theologies and being able to explain every intricate detail uh, and how it all fits together. And then there are some of us where, really, if we're honest, at the end of the day, following Jesus is, is something we feel on the inside. It's this inner sense of guidance by his spirit and connection to God. Now, following Jesus is at the least all of these things, not just one of them. And usually, if we just take one of these aspects, uh, the, the tendency, the slippery slope is, 
is to mutate Christianity into something that it's not. Yes, following Jesus is, is meant to be obeying a set of rules, but that's secondary. And it's meant to overflow first from having come in contact with this person, Jesus, and being so radically from the inside out transformed by his grace that there's this just spontaneous, natural desire to want to live the good, moral Christian life. Yes, Jesus Christ did come to set us free from rules in the sense that there was only one person in history who could fulfill all of God's rules, every jot and tittle to perfection, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And so we wouldn't be free from these rules in the sense of that we have to perform these rules ourselves to earn salvation before God, but this wouldn't happen without the person of Christ himself. Yes, Christianity is a wonderfully beautiful, complex library of uh, uh, just a, a knowledge system and theologies, but all of it needs to end in worship of the person, Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus has left us his Holy Spirit. A beautiful aspect and truth of the Christian life is that God indwells us by his Spirit. And there is this personal daily relationship that we can have with God through his Spirit and the Word and through prayer. But we wouldn't have the Spirit if Jesus didn't come in the first place. So following Jesus is just that. It's following Jesus. It's following this person of Jesus by faith. And so it begins with the person, all these four things that I described to start off. Yes, those are aspects of Christianity. We need to define each of those aspects in the right way. We're not going to get into that today. But those are all secondary. And what's preeminent is that we follow this person, Jesus. And so as a summary of today's passage and, and all of today's message, I want to offer you a prayer as a summary. And this is our destination for the sermon, I hope by the end of the sermon, you'll, you'll sense this in your heart. You'll understand this in your mind, and you'll want to respond to God with this prayer. And the prayer is this, Lord, help me to, to unite to you, to, to abide in you, to stay connected to Christ from the beginning of my faith story to the very end. And so for the rest of today, I want to unpack the question I started with, what does following Jesus look like? And the continued Christmas story, I say continued because usually we think of Christmas as just the birth story, Jesus being born, and, and yes, that is the Christmas story, God incarnating himself, coming into flesh, that's what incarnation literally means. But Matthew, he sees it wise, the Spirit inspired him to also record uh, the, the, the events of Jesus' life up to a toddler age, uh, and then he jumps to Jesus being a grown-up adult. And so even in this continued Christmas story, there's something that this passage teaches us about following Jesus, and it involves, I want to draw out three things today. First, a great exchange. Second, a long return from exile. And third, a victorious finish line. A victorious finish line. A great exchange, a long return from exile, and a victorious finish line. So first, a great exchange. Where do we see this idea of a great exchange? And what do we mean by a great exchange? Well, we see it in verse 15, just picking up at verse 14. Matthew writes, And he, uh, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt because he was warned 
by an angel of the Lord that Herod, King Herod, in his uh, jealous fit of rage because he's insecure, doesn't want to give up his power, his political power, and he sees Jesus Christ, this newborn king, uh, the proclaimed new Messiah as competition uh, for his throne. So he wants to eliminate any possibility of someone taking over his throne. And so he's warned. Joseph is warned. And so he rises and he departs to Egypt. He flees to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And then Matthew quotes Hosea, a prophet from the Old Testament. And Hosea, who writes and prophesied, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when you think of an exchange, it involves at least two parties, right? Sometimes it can involve more, but at least two parties, and and you swap places. And here, why would Matthew quote Hosea? Hosea, when he was... uh, Writing this, first, on one level, on the surface, he was writing about Israel's literal history. He was talking about Israel as a nation. Let me just give a quick bullet point synopsis of what's going on. And and so the first party of this great exchange is Israel, the nation. Israel, if you're unfamiliar, we can just, uh, it's safe to start with Abraham. And God promised Abraham descendants so numerous that they could become a nation. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob, he had 12 sons. And as those 12 sons uh, multiplied and that Jacob's family and his clan grew, they became a nation. Now, before they became a nation, Jacob's uh, name was changed to Israel. And they were forced from their homeland to Egypt because of a famine. And so a type of natural oppression, if you will. And so they fleed to Egypt to have food and to have safety. Now, while they were in Egypt, that's where they multiplied. So much so, they probably started off just as a few hundred as a clan of Jacob and his extended family. And while they were there, they multiplied to several million, several million people. And so within the nation of Egypt, Israel grew into a nation itself, a nation within a nation. Now, Pharaoh, he became insecure, the the lead of Egypt at the time. And so to keep this growing mass of people under control, he enslaved them, and he put them to work to his bidding. So that is Israel's story. And then God heard the cries of his people, and so he sent a deliverer, Moses, to bring them out of Egypt. And so when Hosea says here, out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea is first literally recounting Israel's history, their story. Now God then, he symbolically saw Israel as a son. And he would speak of Israel as his first chosen people and so dear to him like a son. And what God expected of Israel was to be his faithful, redeemed son, literally redeemed out of slavery from Egypt. And God expected Israel to obey uh, God and be in covenant with him, be faithful to the covenant that God had made with Israel, and to flourish in their new freedom. But I've shared this analogy before, and I share it again. It really helps me to understand. I hope it helps you to understand. Just think of it as a championship game, and they need to determine the champion by a penalty shootout at the end, whether it's soccer or hockey. And think of the first team, uh, the, the player on God's team, or the first son was Adam, and he went up and he missed the penalty shot. He failed in doing God's bidding. 
And then the second team, the, the, the player, was Israel, or the second son, so to speak. And Israel, we see in his history that he failed as well. He broke covenant with God. And so that brings us to the story of Jesus. And now God sends his truly, his one and only begotten son, his true son, truly true son. And he comes and now we're all looking. History is waiting to see, will Jesus be the faithful son? And so that brings us to naturally our second question. Who is the second party in this great exchange? And it's Jesus. So when Matthew is quoting Hosea, and Hosea, he's, he's understanding Hosea first, literally talking about Israel's story, that God literally brought Israel out of Egypt. But now Matthew is understanding the story of Jesus as a fulfillment of what Israel failed. What I want you to see with me is that God is so into the business of redeeming that he planned. Let, let me just make a quick side note. God's prophecies, they're not well-researched predictions. Some of us, for our work, our job is to look at statistics, to study past trends and so forth, and make the best research prediction. So we, then we offer a risk management model, or we predict certain stocks and investments and so forth. But God's prophecies, they're not well-researched predictions. They are predetermined plans. And what we see God doing through history is letting his people know through his prophets, through the inspiration of the Spirit, what his predetermined plans are. And we see a faithful God through history unfolding his plan. Even if there are the likes of King Herod who want to oppose God's plan, no one can oppose God. And it's a good plan of redemption. And so Matthew, he writes in verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, behold, and so that's Matthew's literary highlighter. He wants us to pay attention to this. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Why? Because God also had a predetermined plan for Jesus Christ to be a great exchange, to even literally redeem Israel's missteps, where Israel went into Egypt because of a famine and a type of oppression. Now Jesus has to flee into Egypt because of a social oppression, this king wanting to kill him. The point is this, and Mark Dever, in his book, It Is Well, summarizes it beautifully. So I offer you just his thought. So this is the picture. Israel had sinned against God. And what should be done about that? How could so many people find forgiveness? Through atonement. Through the death of a substitute in their place. A sacrifice that would take the penalty due to them. That's the great exchange. Jesus taking the place of those who need forgiveness, even though he's without sin. And why would God teach people such a thing? Because he was preparing them to understand the great truth, as Hebrews, another book in the Bible, says, that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Mark Dever is describing the great exchange. And we see here God wanting to redeem his people's story so much that Jesus is literally redeeming even their historical missteps and going through the same uh, experiences that Israel did. 
Now, for you and me then, we could say, well, that's good for Israel, but no, this is relevant to you and me today as well. December 22nd, 2019. And here's how you and I can live into this, to live this out. First, understand. Understand with your mind that following Jesus, it begins by faith in Jesus as a great exchange for you. God has provided the story of Israel, not just for Israel, but as a story that we can understand. A story for even us to see ourselves in. That we see ourselves in the story of Israel. And I'll show you how we see ourselves in the story of Israel in a moment. But not only understand that, my hope and prayer for you, following Jesus and Christianity becomes alive when certain thoughts of Jesus, when certain truths and understanding of Jesus, it moves down from our thinking and it becomes alive. It catches on fire in our hearts. It catches on fire because we really begin to see and we open up our hearts to Jesus' willingness to take your place, to exact a great exchange even for you. Well, following Jesus, it it starts with this great exchange, but then we see a long return from exile. Every good story has a a beginning and a middle and an end. Stories usually start all cozy and comfortable, and then the middle creates tension. And and that's what we're talking about, this long return from exile. Where, Where do we see this long return from exile? And we see it in the second, the middle portion of today's passage, and Picking up at verse 17, Matthew quotes another prophet. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Now here, Matthew is offering this prophecy as a framework to understand what just happened. And what just happened was that King Herod, and we we see repeats of Herod through uh, history, where certain leaders are so uh, just gone crazy with some passion, with some agenda, that they're willing to commit genocide. And King Herod, out of a fitful rage of jealousy, not wanting to relinquish his throne, permitted an infanticide of killing every boy under two years old in Bethlehem and the region of Bethlehem so as to prevent Jesus Christ from becoming the Messiah and taking over the the throne. Now, King Herod, he had, of course, had a completely uh, miscued understanding of what kind of ruler Jesus would be and what nation and government that Jesus actually wants to set up. And so you imagine all these mothers and fathers just weeping inconsolably. And what what Matthew is doing is he's referencing a time in Israel's history when he says that Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. He's thinking back to the mid-500s before uh, BC. And he's thinking back to the time when the empire of Babylon invaded Israel. Israel, God had warned them many times over, if you continue to be unfaithful, if you continue to break covenant with me, then an, uh, an, a foreign nation will come and invade you. They will take your people captive. And what Ramah was, was a northern city in Israel. And this was the gateway for the deportation. As Babylon invaded and as they began to uproot all these families, to separate parents from children, 
Ramah was the gateway city through which they would ship off all the exiles, all the captives. And so Jeremiah was describing here in this place, a voice heard in this city. And Rachel was the wife of Jacob who became Israel. And so Rachel is a symbolic mother of all Israel. And so Jeremiah is poetically describing this gruesome scene, this inconsolable scene of families weeping and crying out because here we see just droves of people being shipped off, their culture being stripped, their identity being obliterated, being put in shackles, being tortured, being just a a long exile, a long journey to Babylon. And so you see on the map here, on the right, that's Israel. And so you can imagine what that trek would have been like in that time on foot and just the pain, that long journey for it to really sink in, that their identity has been stripped. They've really lost their lives. And so there was a long road to exile. But in between the lines, now as Matthew quotes Jeremiah, What he's saying is, even Jesus Christ, see, God is so into the business of redemption that he causes Jesus, his son, to, in some sense, in in his heart, to retrace all of Israel's sufferings. And just as Jesus was exiled to a foreign land, and there under oppression because of, of a fear of someone killing him, Jesus is redeeming the missteps of Israel. In between the lines, then, is not only a long road to exile, but imagine now if you were that uprooted family and being in exile in that foreign land, your lifelong bleak hope is to return home, is to return home, to heal and return to wholeness of your security, your identity, your culture, your purpose, your joy. And so we see this long return from exile, this longing for it. So why does Matthew connect Jesus to Israel's exile then? Because, as I've said, Jesus is redeeming Israel's breaking of covenant with God. And even these historical missteps, all the sufferings that Israel went through, Jesus was going through it himself in his own way. This consequence of captivity by God's enemies. But again, it's not just about Israel. God has left us these stories and this extended Christmas story for you and me today. And what we need to begin to see is that Jesus, he enters our exile to redeem our breaking of covenant with God and consequence of captivity by God's enemies. And what Jesus longs to offer us is to fulfill our desire to be brought home. Now, I know probably the majority of us today wouldn't describe our lives this way. That if I say, and, and that, but I'm stating categorically, black and white, that all of us, whether you'd like to describe it this way or not, all of us are in exile. All of us have broken covenant with God. All of us have fallen short of God and His glory, His righteousness. And there's something in every one of our hearts that is longing for home. Case in point, just think of everyday life. Think of your work, think of your home. 
just this past week, my wife shared with me just, uh, just how one of her friends had a little mini meltdown at work. And she just confided in, in my wife and just hard to heart, Linda, why am I so angry? Why am I so angry? Now, on the surface, this woman's life looks perfect. This woman's life, by all means, by Canadian standards, global standards, she is living a wonderful life. She lives in a wonderful postal code, has picture-perfect children, and, and, and just a wonderful life that many would envy on the surface. But there's something underneath all of that. And I think she's not alone. Many of us, if we're honest, we're tired. We, we at the end of the day, feel like we're just wandering through the messiness of life, of substance abuse, of sexual addictions, of dissatisfaction at work, unhappiness in the home, a general malaise and resignation to just kind of go with the flow. And because we live in a prosperous land like Canada overall, it's easier to mask that malaise with, with trinkets of entertainment and yummy food and, and so forth and a certain level of comfort. Now, Christians and you, you and I, if you consider a Christ follower, because we have God's view of life, because we have Scripture, we're meant to be, and we can be confident in being, on one hand, the most realistic about life. Life is broken, and we're not afraid to call it out like for what it is. Life is broken, and it's messy. But we don't just stay in a realism that ends in a pessimism. Christians, in the same breath, we are the most optimistic people. Because just as Jesus has been redeeming Israel's missteps, that's a story, a real story in history that is there for you and me to see ourselves in and to place our faith in Christ and see that Jesus Christ wants to redeem our story as well. And so what discipleship, what following Jesus looks like and why Matthew connects Jesus to this exile is because he wants us to know that as we place our faith in Christ, following Jesus, what it looks like is experiencing grace and hope in everyday life and to know that in the final analysis, at the very end, there will be a wonderful, victorious finish line. Now, to take a note from Herod, we see here that he became furious. And, and, and killed all the male children. And, and he ascertained, Matthew takes time and, and pains to note that Herod took time to figure out, this, just to put it in my way, he was scientific. That word ascertain means literally to research diligently. And what you and I do, we're not very different from Herod. First, learn from Herod. If there's something that, that rises in your heart as you're facing life and there's some anxiety or some anger, see that as a telltale sign that you need redemption. God is trying to get your attention to do a work in you, to call you back to him. And Herod could have easily responded in a different way, but no, he doesn't. And he tries with his scientific mind to explain and just to control his life What, we needed to see, what Herod needed to see and what I want you to see and what he failed to see was a victorious finish line.
a victorious finish line. Following Jesus, it starts with this great exchange. Yes, as we follow Jesus, there's this long return from exile. Following Jesus is about having his grace unfold and become more and more real in all of our life and every day, little bit by little bit, experiencing his grace more deeply. But why? Because we have this ultimate hope of a final victory, a finish line. Now, where, where do we see this finish line in today's passage? And before you see a finish line, there's a race, right? There's no finish line without a race. There's no finish line without the long exile, so to speak. And what we see first is, is this race. I want to liken it to a race. Matthew, he says here at the end, and he, meaning Joseph with Mary and Jesus, went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. And we know that Jesus spent the bulk of his life in this area. He, this is where he grew up. And this is what I mean by the race of life. Even Jesus had his race of life. This is where he grew up as a little boy. This is where he would learn to obey God even as he learned to obey his parents. This is where Jesus would learn social cues and, and relationship. This is where Jesus would learn dignified hard work. And when he was old enough to be apprenticed by his own dad and to learn the tricks and the, 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 of the trade of being a carpenter. This is where Jesus learned the dignity of getting calloused hands as he worked with his hands and built something with pride. This is where Jesus learned himself the, the dignity of an honest day's wages. This is where Jesus, being a Nazarene, being in a city that was ridiculed by most, uh, so much so that uh, Nazareth, that they were uh, just mocking idioms like, what good can come from Nazareth? And Jesus trying to find some sense of identity and confidence that doesn't come from his locale and his situation, but from a relationship with God and, the, and God the Father's love for him. This is where Jesus would have grown up in a Gentile region, meaning a non, where there were many non-Jews, and growing a heart beyond his own culture, beyond his own skin and his ethnicity. This is where Jesus would have learned the scriptures, to use his mind, to, to study the scriptures diligently, and to see himself in the scriptures. What I'm trying to show you, this is, this is where Jesus was running the race of his life. Why? Because Jesus himself knew what his finish line was. You and I need to begin to see Jesus entering into our exile. Jesus leaves his home, enters our exile as a humanity, exiled from God. It's just something is off in life because we're separated from God, but Jesus enters our exile. And even as he enters our exile, it's because his finish line is to die in our place. The Christmas story is not the Christmas story just as a Christmas story. The Christmas story only is the true Christmas story when you put it up and next to the Easter story. Let me try to compare it to another race story. At the Barcelona 92 Summer Olympics, uh, Derek Redman of Great Britain, he was a 400-meter gold medal hopeful and in the semi-final qualification round, the starter gun went off, and he had a good start, but about 150 meters in, he felt the searing pain in his right hamstring. And in front of uh, the world, in front of 
the, the broadcast to all the world, he uh, fell to the ground. And as the others, sprinters continued off to the finish line. He was wincing in pain, but then he eventually got up and started limping. He was determined to finish. And then all of a sudden, this older gentleman broke through security, ran up to Derek Redmond, and it was Jim Redmond, his father. And he lent his shoulder for support, and they finished the race together with Derek weeping inconsolably. Now, I offer this race story because it's a lot like what it means to follow Jesus. You and I, in this analogy, are like Derek Redmond. We're trying to run and finish this race of life, but we're all injured somehow. And Christ is the one who enters into our race because he wants to offer this great exchange where we are not righteous enough. He is, and he'll take our place. And then he connects us to the love of the Father to rediscover our identity, our purpose, our joy, our belovedness. And for us to navigate this life as difficult as it is with the greatest optimism as Christ's followers, that God will one day redeem everything. Everything. You think of all the children that were murdered, that the boys that were murdered. And I think Jesus would say to, to those families, don't worry. One day I will die in their place. And if you place your faith in me, they will resurrect because I die. They will have life because of my death. And so you and I too, when, when our hearts begin to be warmed by that grace and transformed at, in the level, the deepest place of our hearts, we'll want to follow Jesus. We'll want to follow Jesus. And so I hope you belong to pray with me. Lord, help me to, to unite to you from the beginning of my faith story to the very end. This is the full Christmas story. This is why Jesus came to this earth as a little baby. Because he's offering you and I a great exchange to bring us home on a long return from exile because there's a glorious, victorious finish line. So in the truest sense, Merry Christmas.